Welcome to the Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences, Inc. I'm Dr. Steve Wood. With me, Dr. Bill Kanaski. Bill, I see you're out enjoying the weather today there in Florida. It's, it's, uh, it's 79 degrees and sunny. I got the beautiful landscape behind me. I am not shoveling snow like the poor, those poor people up in Chicago and in Boston and, and Wisconsin. That's why I live in Florida right here. Yeah, as a Midwest, as a Midwesterner originally, I do not miss shoveling snow. So I'm, I, I agree. I'm, I'm all, all for the hot weather. We're it's about getting in the 80s here in Texas as well. So yeah. things are good. Baseball season's right around the corner, so life is. Well, good. it may be, it may not be around the corner, Steve. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> MLB baseball is not around the corner. Uh, my son's baseball is around the corner. Well, there you go. That might be more enjoyable at this point than. At this point, it may be more enjoyable. Go so, ahead. Bill. I got a rant. I know, I know, I was coming. As, as I know, we've we've had these conversations, and I'm I'm ready to hear what you got to rant about today. I've been, I mean, I've been ranting about it all week, okay. And I'm gonna call this the Valentine's Day rant. Valentine's Day. You get, you are aware Valentine's Day is not a holiday. You're aware of that, right? It depends. It's okay. Whoa, whoa. What's this? The what? Did you go through? Witness, <laughs> did you go through CSI's witness training program? I did. It's not. I've been, it's I've been not a holiday. <laughs> Okay, Christmas is a holiday. Thanksgiving's a holiday. Okay, Valentine's Day. Not are you taking off Monday? You're not going to work on Monday. No, you're going to work, right? Yeah. Okay. After right. after the Super Bowl, so it might be a little rough going to work, but I will be there. It, this this is true. I don't know why they. Do. <laughs> I tell you what. Okay, so um, last year, okay, last year, revenue from Valentine's Day. Ready for this? billion dollars wow let me repeat 18.6 billion dollars and i just i'm just blindsided by that this is that that's a lot of money steve and there's i I just i have this first off if if you're married okay you're done with valentine's day period it's over you're you're married okay you know you're in high school or you're in college and you're chasing that special somebody around hey go buy your roses go buy your candy that nobody's gonna eat okay it's 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 a lot of money and and by the way have you ever tried to get a dinner reservation oh it's brutal you can't do it yeah absolutely can't do it now i'm gonna read now this is what i'm gonna do a little history lesson for you i'm not gonna share my screen but i'm gonna go to this web page because they came out with an article yesterday okay Valentine's Day dates back to 6th century BC. And ready for this? It was a sexually charged and violent rite involving the sacrifice of dogs and male goats to promote fertility. Are you, are you following me here? I'm following, yeah. Okay, I here we go. I'm gonna, I'm, keep, I'm gonna keep, yeah, because you may, you may wanna second think those roses when I tell you this, right? Right, okay, priests, um, had their foreheads anointed with the blood from the sacrificial knife, and then the knife was wiped clean with wool soaked in milk. The priest would later cut strips of goat hide and ready for this, run naked throughout the city, whipping, whipping nearby women with the bloody hide. The whole thing was designed to promote fertility. Oh, um, 
there's a lot to process there, Steve. But I just uh, I see, I I don't see where know. your angst I see where your angst comes from. For well, I'm just saying this is the origins of the holiday, right? And, and then obviously now it's changed. But I don't know if I want to support a holiday that you know you got naked priests running around whipping whipping women with uh, hides. I, I, I don't get, I don't understand that. Yeah. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Kim's not getting flowers this year. Um, well, see, it's her birthday too. So I, I get double doinked on that. Oh. I get double doinked, but I, I tend to go away. From, I don't, I Hallmark's not getting a nickel of my money. Like I'll get gifts, but this whole, the flowers, candy thing, it's just, it's, it's, it's out of control. And then if you don't do it, oh, well then, you know, now you're going to be, you know, ostracized out of your neighborhood or whatever. It's just, I'm just telling you, it's, it's worse than Halloween. It's worse than all these things combined. It's a, it's a Hallmark holiday that 18.6 billion dollars. You know, you could raise that and solve all kinds of problems in this world, but no, we're going to go blow it on roses and flowers that are going to die and candy that you're going to get by the third piece. You're like, what, why am I doing this? And you're going to, you're going to throw it out. So it's not like, it's not even a good investment. And honestly, if you really love somebody, why are we doing this one day a year, right? I mean, shouldn't you tell that special somebody, you know, I'm saying you have to give them roses and candy every day, but you know, one, Agreed. one day a year. I, I, I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. That's, that's my, that's my, um, it's my Valentine's day rant. I, I've, I've had enough of it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Today, <laughs> today we want to talk about something that's probably not much lighter uh, and probably even worse, right? We're going to be talking more yeah. today about, those difficult cases that you and I have worked on that involve bad outcomes for children, correct? Birth injury cases. Uh, I've been working on birth injury cases for 18 years. Um, They're some of the most difficult um, I've seen for a number of reasons. Um, You know, juror sympathy is always going to be there uh, in most cases. And there's certain parts about these cases that you and I see kind of over and over that I thought we should kind of that we should talk about. Uh, I made a list because we see them as we do mock trials and focus groups and and witness training. These are some kind of things that 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 always come up. Um, and the first thing on my list, which which may be the obvious, is that in the vast majority of these cases, you have the physician that's not employed by the hospital as a co-defendant, and then the the nursing staff uh, and, and maybe the hospitalist or something um, underneath the um, the hospital uh, umbrella. And um, from what you and I have seen lately, um, you know, sometimes the, the, the jury kind of favors one party more than the other. And I think that particularly in deposition testimony, as some of the things we've been seeing, I mean, those types of situations are, are, are ripe for conflict. And we were just doing one of these the other day. And what I've heard a million times, which by the way is true, you know, jurors are like, well, you know, nurses are the ones spending 90% of the time with the patient versus the doctor. And do you, do you think the fact, A, that is true, um, and B, that always comes up in the juror mind, do you think that maybe sets up the physician to have a tougher time in litigation ver- versus the nursing staff? Uh, yeah, I would say I think one of the biggest things with doctors, right, is, is the nurses are spending a lot of time with the patient, but ultimately the buck stops with the doctor, right? So they, they're the ones who have to make the decisions. They're the ones that have to make the tough calls and they get information from the nurses 
but like I said, ultimately when the decision flows up to them and their ultimate decision maker, that does create a problem. And it also creates a problem as far as, you know, if we've seen before where one doctor might say they didn't know a certain piece of information that would have been beneficial, jurors then will say, well, why didn't you ask? Why didn't you reach out? Why didn't you get that information? So they do have a tougher time to say, not be able to say that they don't know to things that they should know about. Yeah. And that's the next thing on my list, which again, came up in some of our more recent projects. It's been coming up and it's such a simple theme for the plaintiff is in our, in our recent focus group, jurors were not happy with the healthcare communication between professionals. And um, that, that was, that, that, that's a major uh, problem. I think it's a problem for both parties, whether you're with the hospital or with your, the physician, but it's just such an easy argument to make from the plaintiff's side saying, Hey, you know, this, this birth injury was preventable. You know, if only the right hand knew what the left hand was doing. And I do, I also think that, um, where the physicians, uh, get criticized, and this is just the nature of the industry. These physicians are bouncing around. I mean, they're bouncing around from multiple hospitals and then within multiple, they're when they're in the hospital, multiple patients and sometimes they're only coming in at the very end and can you talk a little bit about you know some of the the jeer feedback we've gotten on on how they view uh communication sometimes it's not just i think they expect a lot more than what actually happens because these doctors are bouncing around yeah they definitely do and i think one of the other things they and it's it's, it's implicit and understood in the actual medical community but you know if if a doctor gives a certain order and then the assumption that with that order comes a lot of other steps that nurse knows that because that nurse has worked with that doctor and they know what that means to be able to do it. The problem becomes though, is you can't go back later and say, Oh, well he made this order. And I assumed that that order meant three other orders too, that just never made it into the actual chart. And jurors are saying, wait a second, you know, you can't assume anything. You need to make sure that you have, all of the orders in there. It's not enough to just assume or work with them and say, I knew what he meant. Because like you said, communication becomes key. And especially when you're talking a situation that could be life threatening and and your communication is poor. If anything, jurors have a a sense that that's when it needs to be at its top. Like if you and I are talking, you know, via email or just sitting around chatting, you know, there's a different assumption in there versus when we're trying to do something of a medical procedure that's extremely important. Yeah. Another thing on my list is that um, the whole concept of, um, you know, having a a doctor essentially acting as an independent contractor, Mm -hmm. jurors really struggle to understand that. And I, even though there's a a definite legal divide there, I don't think jurors really care. (laughs) I think they almost assume that um, even though the, the physician may not be employed by the hospital, they're part of the hospitals the way a lot of jurors see it. Yeah. And I think you hit on a key point. Obviously there's a legal differentiation and we hear that a lot, right? Is, well, we don't have to worry about it because the doctor is actually independent contractor. He's not an employee of the hospital. The problem is jurors, patients, they don't see, they don't see the badge on there that says independent contractor of hospital, right? They might have credentials that show the hospital's logo or, you know, they might, you know, patients think they're part of the hospital. The other thing is, is even if they're not in their independent contractors and it's clear, jurors will sometimes say, well, who hired them? I mean, you hired this independent contractor. Are you not 
you know, doing your due diligence when you're actually hiring people. So it yeah. makes the hospital really hard to get off the hook on that because either A, they did a bad job hiring them or B, jurors and, and patients just assume that they're part of the actual organization. Yeah, back to the communication part um, with our recent project, the one thing that I won't say it was shocking, but it was kind of concerning when you had this physician and nurse that have delivered how many babies together, like something ridiculous over multiple, multiple years. And because something wasn't documented, did you, you know, and I think, I think what the nurse, I think what the nurse's testimony was, and so was the doctors like, listen, you know, she knows my next move. I know her next move. We've done this so many times. The fact that I didn't document something is not a big deal here. I know what's going on. We are on the same page professionally. This is what we do. But the jurors really weren't happy with that, were they? No, no, they weren't. Like, like I said, that goes back to a couple of things they said. One, it goes back to it's not enough to just say you've worked together. If it needs to be documented, it needs to be documented. But then even some of the stuff we heard was, they viewed it as complacency, right? Yeah. They viewed it as you guys have you've delivered so many babies so many times that it just becomes, you know, just another baby that you're delivering so that you get lax in your communication. You get lax in the way you're doing things. Yeah. And when that happens, bad stuff happens. Well, something else that um, we've been testing a lot, which we kind of knew the, I knew the answer to this months and months ago, but it continues. Um, our theory in this continues to be confirmed. Uh, there is no halo effect for hospital systems post COVID. I mean, remember we were, we're like, okay, so, you know, what are your opinions of XYZ medical center and what 95% were like overwhelmingly positive yet when yeah. it came to the damages, they got hammered. And even I remember your, our one uh, juror up in the corner there um, had said, I think his brother had been to that hospital several times. Like, like he was just thrilled with this hot and he was the highest damages award. Yeah. I mean, so can you just talk a little about, cause, cause I, I don't want, I want to make sure everybody understands this. You may have a great reputation. You may have handled COVID well, that ain't going to translate to the, to the deliberation room, is it? No. And I think one of the things where he was getting at was that he had such a high opinion of this hospital mm -hmm. that when something went wrong, it must've been really, really bad and they must've screwed it up because they tend to do things very, yeah. very well and they tend to do things right. So when something bad happens, it really must've been something bad and they must've had something to do with it. Yeah, so all this PR marketing, which I get, which is, you know, they're calling doctors and nurses heroes. When it gets down to the case specifics, I just don't think that really translates to actual juror decision-making. Um, and it is what it is, but at least we've done the research to, to prove that at this point. So um, now I do think it's important, which and again, you can't, you know, we were doing more of a focus group model. If we go to a mock trial, we'll have more testimony. I think the way to utilize that is when you have a corporate representative that's testifying, can talk about the values of the healthcare system. Um, I think that's where you get more bang for, for your buck, but I don't think it's necessary for med mal attorneys or claims people at hospitals or physician insurers to just assume, hey, you know, we're the heroes here. There's no way they're going to side against us and award high damages. Uh, that is not the case. They, they absolutely will. All right. Moving, plow, plowing straight ahead, moving down our list. Um, 
Oh God, fetal monitoring strips. Oh man, I've I've <laughs> never seen a jury. I have never seen a jury. I mean, you've seen these. It just looks like a plate of spaghetti with. I, I mean, you're trying to present these to jurors, and I don't care what type of expert you have or how. I mean, aren't these the most difficult things for jurors to understand? Yeah, I mean, it, it's similar to not quite the extent of like a you know a patent infringement case, but it's one of those things where you have highly technical information and jurors don't know what they're looking at, don't know how they're supposed to be reading it, don't understand what is normal, don't understand what a normal range is, they don't understand any of it. So they just look at it and like you said, it's just an overflow of information that they just don't understand. And there's a lot of it. I mean, you know, you, you get a labor that goes six, seven, eight hours. We're talking and it's just so painful to look at. So you have to present that stuff. But boy, it doesn't I don't think it necessarily gets either side any. You know, in any any way, I don't think there's any advantage necessarily. I do think, again, back to witness prep and witness training, I think the witness that's able to explain it the best. They may not understand it, but that witness is going to have more credibility. So that's why, again, witness performance is so key. Even if they don't understand those fetal monitoring strips, um, um, if one witness can outshine another, um, it's going to make a difference. All right. Well, I think it becomes I think it becomes important there as another one is is understanding from a witness and an attorney's perspective that those types of things need to be broken down into more lay terms. I mean, you don't have to go. <laughs> very 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 basic where you come across and insult the jurors but at the same time you know you need to take time and really synthesize all the stuff so that it becomes easier because if it's a key piece of information if people don't understand it they're not going to use it and not because they don't want to it's because they don't know how to got a shift here got to get some sunlight so you can actually see me okay is that better that's better <laughs> yes okay um another common theme in these cases um timing of c-sections i mean th this is something and, and another again something that jurors just don't understand and it needs to be it needs to be um explained to them very very carefully a c-section is not safe okay i think that everybody thinks like well gosh i mean you know you're having these issues what just call a c-section right like right. it's some sort of easy way out and um yeah i see in a lot of these cases where um, you know, there's some issues going on, you know, maybe some decelerations, right? You know, maybe the pushing is not effective, uh, you know, things like that. And I think a lot of jurors kind of jump to the conclusion. Uh, oh, by the way, are you aware that like in preventative medicine, like how many C-sections are done versus how many should be done by doctors? It's, it's done way too often right now because of this. I think it's because of litigation is that doctors are like, screw this C-section, right? Yeah. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of risk to a C-section. I think in our, again, our, our most recent project, it sounded like um, the jurors were just like, well, duh, just order it. Like, why are you waiting for a C-section? I mean, I think there's a big misunderstanding there, don't you think? There is. And I think you know, a couple things on there is, you know, if, if, if you had a bad outcome from a C-section, then you're going to have the same thing where someone's going to say you did a C-section too soon. Why did you do yeah. it so early? So it's one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't type things. But yeah, I think that is another thing of just understanding that surgeries are inherently risky. And yeah. you know, a, a doctor is not going to put a patient at risk for that 
you know, and be wrong. So they want to make sure they do their due diligence. But to your point, you're, you're, you're screwed either way, because if you make the wrong decision, it's always the, well, if you had just done this, everything would have been fine. And you and I both know that that's not always the case, you know, especially in, in, in the case we're, we're talking about, you yeah. know, the thought if a C-section was done sooner is, you know, and everything would have been fine. There's, there's nothing to show that. So it's a, it's a hollow argument and it's going to get made by plaintiff's counsel, but at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean it's so. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough issue. Um, next thing on the list and closely related comes up in all these cases, your favorite word, Pitocin. Yeah. I mean, they don't understand that either. And they, I mean, there, I think that was the big, probably the biggest part of our project where the part of the most misunderstandings were in, um, you know, how, you know, why it gets initiated, how it gets titrated, what the appropriate levels are. And what we saw, which I've seen in so many other cases, the big battle was the level of Pitocin versus what the strip was saying, right? Right. And the healthcare professionals were, you know, you know, I, you know, the Pitocin doesn't tell me anything. The fetal monitoring strips was telling me what's going on with the baby. The jurors didn't care about the strip. Well, the no. only thing they cared about was the level of Pitocin. And I, I think that's kind of what determined their fate um, at the end of the focus group, don't you think? Yeah, and it goes back to what we were talking about, about not understanding the fetal you know, strip, because you even said at yeah. one point, the, the field strip, that's objective data that they can look at and make decisions. Yeah. That objective data is telling you that things are fine. It doesn't matter what the level of Pitocin was, but yeah, jurors were just hung up on, it should have only been a certain level. They went above that level and that caused them all sorts of problems. And to your point, that was the one thing they just latched onto and couldn't get away from was this level of Pitocin. And yeah, and it was, it was, it was, it was, that was really, really tough and, re and highly related to that um, hospital policies and procedures that, 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 that this right here. And, the, and with our particular case, it was, it had to do with um, how Pitocin should be, you know, administered to, uh, to, to, um, to patients. Um, and, and our, our, our providers were outside of that policy and they thought it was appropriate based on the clinical circumstance we had angry people on this yeah. issue i mean when i was shocked because i remember the question i asked the focus i'm like okay wait a second does everybody that works here i go do you all have policies and procedures in your jobs and all of them said yeah of course and i go do you think like policies and procedures represent like a rule book you have to follow or are those just kind of general guidelines, but kind of your judgment based on the situation counts more? Remember what happened? Oh yeah. The whole the whole room went nuts on me. They're like, oh, that's the rule book. I'm like, well, now wait a second. <laughs> what do you mean it's the rule book? Oh, well, policy is policy. That's those are the rules. And I was trying to, you know, I kind of put my defense attorney cap on. And I was trying to convince them, like, but you can't put every situation in a policy. So how could a policy really be a rule? And I saw a lot of illogical arguments and thinking there. I mean, did, did that not like scare you to death when they started talking about that? It did. And it was, you know, the funny thing is, is if you were to put them in the same position and have a situation where they might have broke policy at their employment, they would probably given you a really good reason on why they did it. 
right? And yeah. you explained it. This certain situation meant I had to do it and all these things because inherently I think they understand that there's exceptions to everything and that, you know, it depends on the circumstances, but what, they weren't having it, you know, it, for the whole, the rules for thee, but not for me type thing they were going on in. Yeah, it did when you had brought up a certain situation where you yeah. talked about if a patient had fallen out of the bed, if you'd, you know, wash your hands for 30 seconds before you went in and picked them up and they were, <laughs> oh no, 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 no. You would go in there and pick them up. It's like, well, how's this any different? Well, in this situation though, that's the rule book. So they were able to kind of mentally do gymnastics to try to fit these some pieces of when circumstances mattered and then when they didn't. And then, I mean, then we were, you know, everybody voted on liability. And I think almost 100% of the people that voted on, voted yes on liability went right to that policy. Absolutely. Yeah. You violate a policy, you're liable. Now let's touch on causation, alternative causation, but we're going to talk about that next episode uh, in a little bit more depth, but particularly, um, and again, we're not mentioning any, any names, um, but when we got when we got to the causation uh, presentations in this uh, jury project, um, the attorney that was representing the defense uh, essentially, well, I think a juror raised their hand during the Q and A. I think the juror said, "Well, if it wasn't the pitocin that caused this, or the the too much pitocin that caused this birth injury, like the." you know, the plaintiff's attorney said, well, then what is like, what, what happened here? Do you remember his response? Yeah. Essentially we don't have the burden to, we don't that. have the burden of proof. Yeah. It's their job to prove it. They didn't prove it. So I don't have to prove anything. Um, Steve, do you want to tell our audience how that went over? That did not go over well at all. And it, no. it goes back to, and like I said, we will talk a little bit more in another episode, yeah. but jurors expect some sort of alternate causation. They expect some other type of reason and to just lay it at the feet of the yeah. plaintiff and say, I don't have to provide anything because they didn't prove their case. When, when in, in theory, legal theory might actually make sense to jurors, it doesn't make sense. Jurors are yeah. not going to accept that. And they're not going to, they're not going to buy that. Yeah. All right. Final uh, thing on my list here, which was another shocker because um, it impacted me as a consultant and that it just, it, it was a dud um day in the life video mm. i thought the day in the life video was brutal i mean brutal and i was like oh guys put my hand down i put my head in my hand going oh we're done we're done it didn't carry the weight i thought it it, it it would and i think i do think that not just necessarily because of covid but because of all kinds of crazy things you see and hear on a daily basis i think Today, now, let's put it this way. I think day in the life videos were far more effective pre-social media, pre-political BS. I, I just, jurors are so desensitized now, but I was, I was shocked to see that they, they got really, really angry about the policy issues and got really emotionally into that. Not one of them brought up the, Remember, I, so I took the vote and I'm like, wait a second. I just I just took everybody's vote. Not one person voted on sympathy or. Yeah, and they, that's they a pretty a, brutal video. Yeah. And, you know, when I saw it and you and I see this all the time, even I saw it and just went, Ugh. you know, your heart feels for that person, you know. But, yeah, they just and their response was pretty much like, well, when you told us what the injuries were, we knew what yeah. the day in the life video was going to show. I mean, so you didn't. You didn't show us anything we didn't already know. 
So to your point, I think with social media and a lot of these things now is that people are becoming more aware that there are people that we know that have afflictions that are dealing with certain things. So I think people have gotten less, like you said, more desensitized to it because it just now is, is becoming more commonplace. Yeah. So I think we learned a lot. Let's finish, let's wrap this up here. Um, and we did not, I did not plan this question for you, but I trust you to not, not screw this up. <laughs> That's an inside joke, everybody. Um, the client decided to start with a focus group in this particular matter, rather than a mock trial. And we deeply, well, we, we told them that was the appropriate thing to do. And that's ultimately what they chose. Can you talk about why starting with a mock trial in this particular case probably would have ended up with more questions than answers? Yeah, I think be, going back to, you know, we're talking about the alternative causation and, and other things. The Allowing us to do the focus group allowed us to really kind of identify those pain points, the whole, you know, the policy issues, the Pitocin issues, understanding of the test strips. These are all things that now having the focus group and realizing those were areas that you needed to focus on, you know, will help to, to influ influence and help build out the mock trial so that when you go to the mock trial, you're a lot more armed and ready to yeah. explain those things. And like I said, had you gone in and done it in a mock trial, you would have left those pieces out much like they did in the focus group. And during deliberation, some of that stuff might not have come up and you might not have sure. realized how much they were focusing on it, how much they didn't understand the strips and how much they just weren't following the things that were being presented. So I think doing the focus group was a lot more interactive and allowed them the flexibility for us to really pinpoint and identify those key issues that then, like you said, going forward in the mock trial, you can make sure you, you hit. And then when it's all said and done, you know, when you do the mock trial, you'll have a lot more in information you'll have a better case that you yeah. built out so that you do have a better idea of what it would look like if you were to take it to trial with that information totally agree do the exploratory stuff first get through the headaches the confusions the stuff take a deep dive figure it out that's going to result in a better mock trial Agreed. all right well i think this was a very uh productive episode um um we're going to be doing more birth injury cases so if any of our uh, I know many of our audience members um, actively are working on cases like this and other complex healthcare litigation. Um, give us a call. We're happy to help. Uh, Steve, take us out. All right. If you need anything, as always, right, you can reach out to Bill at bkanasky, K-A-N-A-S-K-Y at courtroomsciences.com. Reach out to me at swood at courtroomsciences.com. We'll see you on another episode of Litigation Psychology Podcast. Take care. See you.